for the next few weeks, we're going to be doing a series called The Mothers of Jesus. In Matthew 1, he outlines a biological genealogy of Jesus, all the way from Adam to Jesus. And in there, he mentions four women. Five if you include Mary, his mother, which was totally against convention back then. Women were not included in genealogies. The first one who we're talking about this morning was Tamar. She was a desperate, poverty-stricken widow who did whatever it took to have kids. After that is Rahab, a woman who lived in the city of Jericho, and the Israelites sent in spies before attacking the city. She hid the spies in her house and lied to the guards. And there's Ruth, another widow, renounced her family tribal god and followed the one true god of the Jews. And then we have Bathsheba. In the genealogy, they just refer to her as the wife of Uriah. Bathsheba was seduced by King David and conceived. To cover it up, King David had her husband murdered and then married her as part of the mourning and to cover up the pregnancy. And then we have the mother of Jesus Mary, a teenage girl who was engaged to be married. These are not the Christmas stories that you would pick to anticipate the birth of the Messiah. And I do have to say a little disclaimer today, too. The story we're reading is definitely not one that you'll hear in Kids Park. It's uh, some adult content in the story this morning. But that's what we're going to do. We're just going to read through the narrative of Genesis 38 and see what happens with our two main characters, Judah and Tamar. But before we do that, we need to get a little bit of context. We are jumping into a world here that is completely different from ours. There's very little similar. And in the ancient world of the Middle East, there are two things we need to understand. The first is family ties and hierarchies and inheritance. We're looking at a world where family bloodlines were everything. The family that you belonged to was part of who you were. It was part of your identity. It's uh, very different today. We, if we're lucky, we can name back to maybe our great-grandparents. And if the family has kept it up, they have an extensive family tree that you can track. But even that is seen more as... Uh, hobby and just something interesting, it's not really seen to have a bearing on who you are today. Back then it did. The family you belonged to was part of who you were. And we see that also throughout much of the New Testament. When someone's named, it's typically named what family or tribe they belong to. The, in here we'll see the Adulamites or the Hittites or what we, are, we commonly hear, the Israelites. That was the family and tribe they belonged to. The other thing we need to understand about families was the way inheritance was structured. They followed a patrilineal inheritance, meaning it was just males. Women didn't get anything. Sorry. 
it was received through marriages. So the only way a woman would be provided for is if she married into a family and would get an inheritance through the husband, and the husband would, out of his kindness, provide for her. They also followed what was called a primogeniture inheritance structure. This means that it was the firstborn male that received the largest portion or all of it. Um, this is the structure we typically think of when we think of like European kings in the Middle Ages. That was a strict primogeniture. The, the son, the firstborn son, would receive the throne after the father died, no matter what the relationship was with the father, how the person acted, anything like that. They received the throne once the father died. It's a little bit more loose in the Bible because we see times where the patriarch's blessing impacted that. So it would change who the son went to, but generally they stuck with the firstborn male received the inheritance. The other thing, and this is a little bit more known to us as a dowry, the wife would come with a gift to the husband in marriage from the wife's family. And the interesting thing, though, is this would not go to the wife. It would go to the husband. So, again, she gets nothing. Only out of the kindness of the husband's heart. So, what was important to understand is if you were married and your husband died without having kids, it was absolutely devastating for a woman. That would sentence her to a life of poverty and fending for herself. There is no such thing as the bachelorette in ancient times. It was instant poverty. So having a son, specifically, was extremely important to women back then. The second thing we need to know is tribal temples and, a, and cult prostitution. So this ancient world is split up with all these families and tribes, and they each have their own tribal god that they worship. And they would set up their own temples. And we, through the Bible, follow the tribe of Israel. They worship the one true God, but they're surrounded by tribes that are worshiping all these other gods. And they have their own way of worshiping. And in the ancient times, sexuality made its way into the worship in their temples. So they would commonly have a cult prostitute in their town. And it might sound weird, but it's really not that far-fetched. Sex is the most sensual human experience. So why would it not enter into their worship to try and make the worship of their God the most sensual experience they could have? It was very commonplace. We even see it in the early church in the book of Acts. There's temple prostitutes that are happening at that time as well. And it was a very common practice. So those are the things we need to know before we dive into the story. <clears throat> These family laws, structures, there's strict relationships with inheritance. And there is commonly 
cult prostitution happening in all of these towns around them. So if you want to turn with me to Genesis 38, we're going to look at this story. Now, you can follow along if you want, but the important part is for you to follow the narrative of the story. So if it will help you to read along as I'm reading along, do that. If it will help you to just close your eyes and listen to the story, do that. Whatever will help you grasp the storyline that we're going through. This will basically just be story time. And I'll slowly read through the story with a few comments along the way. But again, before we dive in, I need to introduce you to the family that we're talking about. We have the patriarchs of the family. There's Abraham. He gave birth to two sons. Isaac was the one that received the inheritance. And Isaac then had Jacob. Jacob is the father of one of our main characters, Judah. Jacob was an interesting guy. He, when he left uh, his family, started his own family, he went to work for this man, and this man had two daughters, an older one named Leah and a younger one named Rachel. We're told that Rachel was absolutely beautiful, and Leah had great personalities. And Jacob immediately fell in love with Rachel. And he wanted to marry her. The father was like, yep, I'll marry you. You work for me seven years, and you can have Rachel. So he worked seven years for Rachel. And the wedding comes, and it must have been quite a party, because he woke up the next morning and found out it was Leah that he had married. And the father says it's not our custom to marry the younger daughter first. So at the end of this celebration week, you can then marry Rachel, but you have to work for me another seven years. And he does it. But this makes some obvious family tensions. And he was very verbal about his love for Rachel and his tolerance of Leah. Everyone in the family knew he loved Rachel more. But here's the thing, Leah had kids. Rachel did not. Leah started having kids, and the fourth child was named Judah. It was a boy. Rachel still didn't have kids. Finally, after a while, Rachel had a son, and they named him Joseph. And because this was Rachel's son, he was Jacob's favorite. And all the other brothers knew it. Obviously not the best family situation. So one day, all the brothers are working out in the field, and Jacob tells Joseph, hey, go check on your brothers, see how they're doing. They see him coming, and all the brothers say, now's now's our chance. Because there was something that Joseph did that was the last straw. He got all the family together and said, hey, I had a dream, and you were all bowing down and worshiping me. Isn't that cool? So, so they, that was it for them. They saw him coming, and they thought, let's take him and let's kill him. So the brothers surround Joseph. They rip his special coat off that his father had made for him. They rip it up and put animal blood on it to make it look like he was attacked by an animal. And they throw him in a pit. And our main character, Judah, says this as they see they, th- they throw him in this pit. It was an old well, dried up well. And they see a, a caravan coming. And Judah says, 
What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and let not our hands be upon him. So as they're trying to kill him, Judah's thinking, oh, what's going to profit us if we just kill him? Why don't we sell him? Judah is not the nicest guy. <laughs> now, it is at this point that we jump into the story. Joseph has just been sold into slavery. The brothers go back to Jacob and say, Joseph was killed by an animal. He's dead. This absolutely crushes Jacob. He falls into deep depression for years. We see even in the end of the book of Genesis that he's still upset about it. So then we come to Genesis 38. So let's read the story. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite, whose name was Hira. There, Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. You can see the family lines again, naming what tribes it belonged to. He took her and went into her, and she conceived and bore a son. He called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. Yet again she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Chezib when she bore him. So, Right after this incident with Joseph, obviously family life would have gotten even harder. So he leaves to start his own life. He finds a woman, falls in love with her, and they get married, and they end up having three sons. Continues on. And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her, and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground, so as not to give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. So then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. For he feared that he would die too like his brothers. And so Tamar went and remained in her father's house. So Judah's sons grow up. This is years. Years have gone by now. They grow up. We don't know much of anything about Tamar, where she was from, what her family was like. But Ur ends up marrying her, and he dies without giving her any children. Now remember, this is devastating for a woman, because she is without any resources now. But in those days, it was common practice that the younger brother would marry the wife and give her children. We, this happened for years. It was a common practice. We see it even in the Gospels when the Jews come up to Jesus to try and trick him. And they say there was a brother who had a wife and he died with no children. So the next brother married her. He died with no children. The next brother, so on, so on. Whose wife will she be when they get to heaven in the resurrection? 
They try to trick him about the afterlife. But even you can see the practice stretched on for quite a while. So this may be weird to us, but it was very common back then. And again, it was part of the providing for women. Because if they didn't have kids, there was no avenue of resources for them. So Onan is given to her, but he's incredibly selfish. Because he knows, okay, if I have a kid with her, it's not going to be my kid. In fact, it will be in front of me in inheritance. Because legally it will be my older brother's firstborn son. So if I can make it so that she doesn't have a kid, I get the inheritance. What he did was evil in the sight of the Lord, so God killed him with no kids. Judah starts to see a pattern and maybe wisely says, okay, let's hold on here, and kind of puts a stop to things and says, once my youngest son grows up, you can have him. So he tells her, Remain a widow in your father's house till Sheila, my son, grows up. This is much more devastating than what we realize. He basically is telling her, I don't want to have anything to do with you anymore. Go back to your father's house. I'll come get you when we're ready for you. And not only that, she has to dress herself in widow's clothing and be in mourning. One of the main themes of this entire story is that everyone in it is acting for nothing but self-interest and their own benefit. Verse 12. In the course of time, some translations say some years later, so a lot of time has passed, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers, he and his friend Hira the Adulamite. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments, which she was still wearing years later, and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up, and sat at the entrance to a name, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up, And she had not been given him in marriage. And when Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. So it's been years now, and these are tough years for a widow. You're dressed in mourning clothes. She's back at her family's house, which she technically is no longer a part of, because she married into Judah's family. She's living in poverty. She hears that Judah's coming up to check on his flocks and knows that she's probably not going to get Sheila as a husband. So she takes off her widow's clothes and dresses as a prostitute and goes to wait on the road for Judah. Verse 16. He turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come in to you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She had covered her face. She was dressed different. This is years later. She said, what will you give me that you may come into me? 
And he answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, if you give me a pledge until you send it. And he said, what pledge shall I give you? She replied, your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. And then she arose and went away, and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. So, Judah propositions her, but she's smart. Judah says, I will, I'll give you an animal for my flock. And she says, no, I need a deposit. So she asks for his signet, his ring, or his signet, his cord, and his staff. Now, a, a signet was, it was typically a ring or something you'd have around a necklace, and it was engraved with the family seal or some sort of symbol that marked who owned it. And they were used to sign documents. They would stamp it into uh, wax, which is something that's still kind of done today, or it would be pressed into uh, a clay document to sign and mark the document. So it's the ancient equivalent of getting his driver's license and social security number, which is pretty smart. And also pretty stupid on Judah's part. So they sleep together and she conceives. And then she gets up, leaves, goes back to her house, puts back on her widow's clothing. Verse 20. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend the Adulamite to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the men of the place, where is the cult prostitute who was at a name at the roadside? And they said, no cult prostitute has been here. And so he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also, the men of the place said, no cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, let her keep the things as her own, or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat, and you did not find her. So obviously, this is an embarrassing situation. <laughs> Judah sends his friend with the goat back to town. He's looking for her. Not only can he not find her, but all the guys in town are saying, yeah, we've never had a prostitute here. And we see a little bit into Judah's pride when he says, just forget it. They're just going to laugh at us if we go back and look for her again. So let her keep it. Verse 24. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. Unbelievable. This guy is prideful, self-righteous jerk. He's calling her out to be burned for the exact sin that he committed with her. 25. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify whose these are, the signet, the cord, and the staff. 
oh, how I wish I could have been a fly on the wall in that situation. When we, when we get to heaven, I hope that I can watch all of history play out. I don't know, maybe it'll look like a movie theater or something. And you can sit down and just watch it all unfold and see God work in the background of everything. And I cannot wait for this scene. Judah's response in 26. Then Judah identified them and said, She is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son, Shelah. And he did not know her again. They never slept together again. They didn't get married. But she did get pregnant. And later in that chapter, towards the end, we see that she had twins, two boys. Judah is laid bare in this situation. And I believe that this scene is why the author Genesis put it here. I mean, why, why wasn't this story in Genesis 36 or Genesis 39 or 40? It's a weird place to put it because it totally breaks up the flow of the story with Joseph getting sold off into Egypt. Because right after this chapter, we go back to Joseph and it's nothing but him for the rest of Genesis. But I think we placed it here because he wanted us to see what happened to Judah for those years that Joseph was gone. And this event changed him deeply. So continuing on the bigger story, Joseph is sold to slave traders. He then gets sold off to Egypt. He works for people in Egypt for a while. Eventually he gets into prison through some crazy circumstances, and it's years that he's there. Eventually, uh, Pharaoh has a dream, and Joseph is able to interpret that dream because God reveals it to him. And the dream is that there's going to be seven years of bumper crops, just plentiful years, and then followed by seven years of famine. Joseph reveals this to him, and Pharaoh says, awesome, I'm putting you in charge of it. And he becomes second in command of all of Egypt. And what they do is during seven years of plenty, they store the extra crops, and then the famine hits, and they start selling the food. And Egypt becomes the most powerful nation in the world because of it. But Jacob and his family and all his brothers are just a small tribe in the land of Canaan, eventually they run out of food. And they need to go back to Egypt to buy food because there is no more. So Judah and his brothers come and Joseph recognizes them, but they don't recognize Joseph. And he gives them a hard time. They're there to get food. He says, no, you're here to spy on Egypt and see how weak we are. And they end up getting the food, but he takes one of the brothers captive as a prisoner. And he says, when you come back, you bring your youngest brother, which was Joseph's brother, Benjamin, 
from Rachel. He says, when you come back, you bring your youngest brother. They take their food, they go back home. More time passes, they eat all the food, and the famine still continues, they got to go back and buy more food. And they're knowing that they're going to have to come up to this guy again. And Jacob is still devastated at Joseph being killed. And Jacob is saying, you are not taking my other son. And here's what Judah says at that moment. This is in Genesis 43. Judah says, send the boy with me, and we will arise and go, that we may live and not die, both we and you and also our little ones. I will pledge his safety. From my hand you shall require it. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. That sounds like a very different man from the one who said, what will it profit us if we just kill him? Why don't we sell him? So Jacob says, okay, take Benjamin and go. They go to Egypt. Joseph sees them, sees Benjamin, and Joseph says, I'm going to keep him as my servant. And Judah speaks up again. He says, now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to you. And let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. There was a big change in Judah. He was a different person in this interaction than he was in the earlier interactions we see. And Joseph knew it. Because at this point, Joseph absolutely breaks down. He sees that his brother is a different man than the one that sold him into slavery. It says, Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, Make everyone go out from me. And so no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it, and the whole household of Pharaoh heard it. Joseph breaks down and tells his brothers, it's, it's me, it's Joseph. And his whole family ends up moving to Egypt. Along with Tamar and her two twins. So, what in the world does this story tell us about Christmas? <laughs> there were two things that stuck out to me in this story. One, God is absolutely sovereign over our circumstances. The amazing thing in this story is that every single person was acting only out of selfish ambition and comfort and convenience. Not one of them was thinking, how are we going to carry on the messianic line for Jesus to get here? Even taking that into account, God accomplished exactly what he purposed. 
the promised Messiah that would eventually come to bring your salvation came through this story of sexual immorality, selfishness, betrayal, and lying. Matthew Henry, the old commentator, in talking about this passage, says, Christ came into the world to save sinners, even the chief, and is not ashamed upon their repentance to be allied to them. In this story, as well as in the other ones that we'll see, we also see the heart of the gospel. God works in chaos and darkness to bring about redemption. And that is the absolute heart of the gospel. Out of chaos, he brings purpose. Imagine the chaos of the night Jesus was betrayed. His disciples scatter. His ministry's over. They don't know what's going on. Peter gets so scared that he lies to a little girl that he didn't know Jesus. But in that betrayal, redemption comes. Out of struggle comes peace. This was a crazy family, (laughs) crazy relationships. And just think of the political struggle when Jesus was betrayed. He's arrested, put through a shoddy trial, and then murdered. And through that comes redemption. Out of darkness comes light. The darkest moment in human history was when Christ was arrested and murdered. And out of, in that moment, was the greatest image and view of God's glory and beauty and love. At the darkest moment this world has ever seen. And it is stories like this that we see that acting out over and over and over again. So what's the point to take home? It's this, that God works in your struggles. And when I say that, a lot of times what we hear is God takes you out of your struggles. And that's not what I'm saying. God works in your struggles. God works in the pain and in the hurt. And in the tears. Maybe not by taking you out of the tears. But he works in the tears. I wanted to take you to Romans 8. Which in my mind is the most important chapter in the entire Bible. Here we see that most clearly because sometimes we think God's not working until the discomfort is gone and his working is to get me out of it. 
But we see in stories like this, it's not always the case. God works in the hard times. We don't have time to look at the whole chapter, but I want to look right at the, towards the end. There's the common verse that we all know. Romans 8.28 And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. But I think we use that verse kind of cheaply and make it mean, hold, hold your chin up, it'll get better. I don't think it's what he's saying. Down to verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. He doesn't say after all these things we are more than conquerors. Coming out of all these things we are more than conquerors. In all these things we are more than conquerors. In the famine, when you don't have any food and you don't know what you're going to eat for supper, you are more than a conqueror. In the distress, Everything's falling apart. It's chaos. Where Tamar was. She didn't know what was going to happen. In your distress, you are more than a conqueror. We're going to have the worship team come back up and sing kind of a last minute song that I thought would be good. We've done it a few times over the past few weeks. But I wanted to read one of the verses in the chorus. There's a verse towards the end that talks about this perfectly. It says, From the gravest of all valleys come the pastures we call grace. A mighty river flowing upwards from a deep but empty grave. And the chorus, I will praise you on the mountain, and I will praise you on the mountains in my way. You're the summit where my feet are. I love that phrase. You're, God's the summit, not the top of the mountain. So I will praise you in the valleys all the same. No less God within the shadows. No less faithful when the night leads me astray. You're the heaven where my heart is in the highlands and the heartache all the same. So we're going to close with singing that song and we also have communion. That's our way weekly of remembering that truth. The reality of the gospel that no matter what, how dark the circumstance no matter how much chaos, God is working in it. 
to bring about redemption. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these truths. Lord, help us to cling to them. Help us to live them even when uh, everything else is falling apart. Even when we don't understand what's going on. Help us cling to these promises of the gospel. Help us cling to these stories where we get glimpses of you working in darkness and chaos. Lord, just help us remember. In Jesus' name, amen.